The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyon. As usual, thank you everybody for joining on this Saturday conversation here on Space. My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. It's joining me for the hour, Alexander Stahl, who's got a hell of a pedigree and has a lot to say about the electricity crisis going on, or soon to come, I should say, perhaps in Europe. Alexander, for those who are not familiar with your background, talk about who you are, how you get involved in the commodity space, and why is it that you're an expert when it comes to European energy markets? Thanks, Michael. Thanks for having me. Can you hear me well? Yes, sir. Okay, cool. So, look, I run a, a short, long equity book. We mainly run our own money, and then obviously we have some client money. And I'm in commodities for, uh, call it, 20 years. And, you know, once you start to work on one commodity, you have usually quite good access to other commodities too. And so these days, we can say we cover all of energy commodities and then certainly all the metals and, and minerals. And by now, we also feel quite comfortable in fertilizers. So we're happy to speak about any of those. And then, of course, I think, um, as you pointed out, I think European markets at the moment um, experienced uh, the most disruption. And so I thought it's maybe most interesting to talk about them rather than talking for the gazillions time about oil markets where I think there is a lot of knowledge around, but we're happy to take those questions too. Okay. You're not too far from Zurich, I believe, right? Yeah. Look, we, we, we are based in Zug, call it the homes of metals, but also oil, because obviously, as you know, Vitol is not far from here and Vitol manages, I think, 12 million barrels a day. When I say manage, the Vitol is the second largest oil trader in the world. So they handle the physical commodity, the fine distribution, call it, of oil. And then there is obviously Glencore and Trafigura here as well. They're all spin-outs of former Mark Rich, which became Glencore. Trafigura created, you know, after having run the book at, at uh, Mark Rich for, for 20 years. So, you know, this the, the kind of the community that handles many commodities has a way to be here in Zug since Mark Rich came over call it as a fugitive, as the enemy of the state once Giuliani wanted to go after him because he handled Persian oil back in the days in the 60s. So that's uh, why Zook somehow has become a, a hub for commodities. So in a prior life, Alexander, I worked at a family office that was based out in Geneva. And I'd go back and forth from New York to Geneva, did the walk on Rue de Rhone many times. And on a side note, Geneva to me is is a fun city, but it's, it was always striking to me that it seemed like every other store was either a, either a watch store or a chocolate store. 
I'll never forget sort of the the dynamics of what I saw there. But you know, obviously, there's a lot of wealth, a lot of family offices that are based out in Switzerland and Geneva in particular. I'm curious because I'm sure you talk to a lot of different people, and I'm sure it's a fairly small community. How is some of the the super wealth responding to? what's happening in Europe in terms of commodity prices, in terms of natural gas? Have they largely allocated to the space in advance? Are they taking some other measures? I want to get into what you see locally in Switzerland. Well, I'm not sure I'm competent to answer that question. I don't have much contact into, call it the the private wealth community, you know, the the private banks of Switzerland, I, I don't know too much about them. But, but the point, of course, I mean, I, in my view, people are concerned, not just in Switzerland, all of Europe, because, you know, the, the prices that we see at the moment simply means they, they're going to de- destruct, destroy a lot of industrial business. And, and then the question is, is it short term or is it longer term? And that's what the people that run these companies have to answer. And, and, you know, that's where we get in contact at times with them. Yeah, no, no, fair enough. It was just more of a curiosity on my end. Okay, so I, I'm, I'm going to share in the space a tweet that you put out back in March arguing that this is not a, a crisis of war. This is a crisis of bad policy. So first of all, I want you to outline for those that are not familiar, what exactly is this European electricity crisis all about? What's the history of how we got here? And why is it not so much driven by the narrative of Putin as opposed to the reality of politicians? Well, it is driven, of course, by the lack of of gas flowing into Europe at the moment. So that's certainly the main trigger for higher electricity prices. I mean, you know, the, the key to understand about Europe is that we have since June 2021 what is called the European Climate Law. So you guys don't have that yet over there in the States. And the Chinese certainly do have so similar kind of laws that require the industry to comply to certain measures. And they can be all sorts of measures when it comes to CO2 emissions. Now, that makes certain, call it reliable, to go back to electricity, reliable electricity production. And I get back to the term why I use reliable, more vulnerable to these policies because they emit CO2. Now, if you run a utility in, call it, southern Germany, NBV, which is E-N-B-W, which is is about 20% of German electricity production in terms of portfolio, and then they manage large parts of the grid too, and then you have to start to comply with these rules and regulations, with the climate law of Europe because you are part of the EU. And that means you have to shift your portfolio. Like it, don't like it, more money, less. You just have to comply and you will comply. And that means what you see generally, because obviously that law was written, you know, call it six years back, and then it was iterated in the European Commission, and then finally becomes the climate law. And the climate law more or less says, by the way, you know, fit for 55, you have to reduce your CO2 emissions by 55% come 2030. So that now means as a utility, you say, oh, gee, what, what am I going to do with my coal portfolio here? Because that obviously has the CO2 emissions. Okay, so you can then buy those carbon certificates to offset the emissions and you, you cost go up. At the moment, that's not the main concern. But long term, you just know that coal portfolio, which re- which which produces that reliable base load that works so beautifully in connection with 
what I call unreliable, you know, renewables. So wind and solar and also hydro, which comes in when humans don't control it. The weather is in control of it. That, you know, now you have to kind of get rid of your reliable base load and you have to go towards renewables. Now, that in itself, you know, at the margin is not a big deal, but this is now going on in Germany for what I would say 10 years. And then on top, Germany had a very special, um, call it, you know, struggle with nuclear. So Germany in 2009 still had 20 gigawatts of, of nuclear installed. And then came the Fukushima disaster and Merkel, the power lady she was in charge in Germany for, I think, 24 years. You know, she wanted to make sure she can keep her coalition together. And then she made, she, she, you know, she started to trade, call it nuclear in order to keep her power base in place. And the Green Party, which grew bigger and bigger in Germany, always wanted to get rid of nuclear. And we can talk about the things for right or wrong later, but I'm just telling you what, why we are where we are. And then, so today, Germany is, Germany is instead at 20, only at 4 gigawatt installed nuclear. And that 4 gigawatt is supposed to be turned off by the end of the year. So now you have a completely different kind of grid or we'll call it power base, a power installed in order to feed the grid. And Germany, of course, is the largest power producer in Europe, just followed neck to neck by the French. And there is the last little bit that we have to mention up front. The French have a lot of nuclear installed. They believe in nuclear. The problem is they somehow EDF, uh, mainly state-owned enterprise in, in, in France, F, they run all the nuclear plants, but somehow poorly. And that hasn't gotten my attention so far while things were roughly fine and in balance and all these major energy producers in Europe, the UK, France, Italy and Germany, they had a portfolio of alternatives. And so that wouldn't be a big issue. But now everything comes together, right? So we don't have the, the nukes in Germany anymore um, by the end of the year. We, at the same time, rely heavily on gas production, but we don't have the gas to feed them. And then the coal plants were taken more and more offline. Now they are still around, but they cannot replace the two other sources. And then at the same time, you have problems in France with the maintenance of nuclear power production. And now you have what I would call a perfect storm. Now let me add to that perfect storm. We weather, as I said, man, uh, metals a lot in what comes out or what goes into the grid because of that large-scale renewable portfolio of combination of hydro, solar, and wind. And now I come back to your question, why do I call it you know, a silly policy? Because we mainly created a, a European grid that now relies on the mood of weather. And that... For an economy as a block, the same size of the US, about $21 trillion per annum. I mean, that cannot just be it. That can just not be the serious policy that we are following. That's just a complete joke. But that's exactly where we are now. And that's why we're going to have, you know, a nervous participation in the, in the power production, which you can now, you know, rather than me saying, look, this is going to get tight, I don't. I don't have to give you my feelings. I obviously have the numbers and I'm going to tell you it's going to be tight for the winter. 
to avoid curtailments in electricity, but you can much practically, more practically measure it, and that's the, by the price of power in Europe. And that is completely exploding. So if you, I just posted some prices, you can see obviously there the correlation with gas prices, but that's not the key issue. If I now pick France and go peak power load for December 2022, and I told you they have maintenance issues with the nukes, then you will actually see that that price is now at 2,000 or above 2,000 euro per, key, per megawatt hour. And that should be 20, not 2,000. So here we go. We have a serious issue here in Europe when it comes to electricity, electricity reliability, that is not going to go away overnight, also not with a peace agreement. So here we are. Is it is a function of the, um, of the policies being bad or being overly ambitious, right? Because you can make an argument that from a longer-term perspective, it's not a bad thing to focus on decarbonization and having other sources of of energy electricity but maybe perhaps the timeline was was too ambitious and it would just take longer than the policymakers initially thought what are your thoughts on that we'll be back after a quick break hello listeners michael guyad here from lead lag live are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends risk management and investment strategies then you need the lead lag report Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Well, it's it's very simple. I mean, first of all, nothing... Judging too much the different power production portfolios, the rule should always, there should be a simple rule in place. Any utility out there should not be allowed to turn anything off until he has replaced it, you know, green or less green or more green, I couldn't care, until he has replaced it with a source that can provide exactly the same. Now, what is the same? The same is not a number for the year. The same is the same kind of electricity base load that you are turning off, meaning a pattern that comes in during the day, during the week, during the months in a similar comparable way as what you turn off. That would be my way of running this policy. And if you do that, you can allow the market to find the solutions and what is economic and what is not economic. And maybe you even want to subsidize some more, some less. And then you'll find solutions because, you know, am I in generally told against solar? Absolutely not. Why would I? Solar in Spain produces about 20% capacity utilization. Now, that's not the 40% modern gas-fired power plant can do, but it's not bad. The problem is solar in Germany or in the north of Europe produces 7 to 9% net. And that's just a joke. That's a waste of our resources. So I think at the moment, the policies are such that the market doesn't work and also that the security of the grid is not in the forefront of the policy. And the security of the grid has to become at the forefront of the policy. Maybe let me just explain something, Michael, which is important. What is security of the grid? So a modern-day grid, by the way, these are technical marvels. You know, they are just are incredible pieces of technology, grids, okay? And the European grids are certainly so. Now, 
a grid needs to run within a frequency. Call it like our heart. We have a heart rate and we have to behave within that possibility of a span of more or less. And if we you know, have not enough heart rate, we're going to die. And if we have too much, we're also going to die. And that's exactly true for the grid as well. So we have we run a 50 hertz grid in Europe. You guys run a 60 hertz grid. And that grid needs to be kept in balance at any point in time. Now, what does it mean in balance? Well, we cannot store energy. Now, people say, oh, no, we can store energy in, you know, here in my little battery that I'm just using for my iPhone. Yes, we can in small scale. But we cannot, on the basis of feeding a grid, the European scale has. And we cannot even, you know, at the margin, with the, those little pump storage facilities we have, by the way, in a, in a, Europe is full of mountains, as you know, the Alps. And yet, it's, it's irrelevant. It's about 0.5% of the energy we consume that we can currently store. So, for a long time to come, storage will not provide if you are if you're like we like we are you know technical people and number people you just know that we're not going to solve the renewable side what it produces too much with storage anytime soon to then be able to draw upon that storage when we need it most at night or in a cold winter day so in order to keep that grid in the 50 hertz we need to have what i call base reliable base load and that comes from mainly nuclear from coal, a bit, for, uh, of course, from, from gas fire plants. And then you have a bit of others, such as, you know, some oil fired plants, but that's only 1.6% of installed capacity in Europe. Then you have some, you know, waste and other kind of renewable biomass that provides quite reliable power. And the rest is very unreliable. You just don't know when it's going to come. Of course, you have patterns from the past, but they are, you know, they can be vastly different as they are right now in the heat wave of Europe. I see a few people want to ask questions. Yeah, and I would say it's an interesting question because I'd say that's not just a European issue. There's, there's, there's always a degree of, let's call it willful ignorance when it comes to politicians. But anyway, go, go ahead, Alexander, kind of, kind of riff on that a little bit. Look, it's a very fundamental question if we look at it the right way. And what I like to say is we all get, first of all, I'm from Switzerland, not Germany, but, you know, thank God we have a direct democracy here, the only one in the world. And so we can at least fix things for our politicians because they don't really make decisions for us on nothing. Okay, but so in Germany, it's obviously has been a disaster. And by the way, large parts of Europe. But here is what I like to say. Look, we are the people. And we get the politicians we deserve. And if all of us fall prey to false promises, and they are not necessarily even false, let me go even a step further in just a second, but if we fall prey to false advertising, you know, if we do that at the company level and we buy a bad product, we go back to the company, it's by the way, here in your country, it says otherwise, and please refund me. With politicians, it's a little harder. They usually sit there for four years, and in those democratic cycles, they can do a lot of damage. But at the end of the day, why is the Green Party in Germany so big? Because people love what they have to say. They want to save the planet. You know, the worst kind, of call it, you know, the best intentions have led throughout history to some very, very bad outcomes. And so here we are dealing with some very good intentions. Let's save the climate, right? in 30 years' time to come. And I have nothing against it. I'm not a 
physicist, so I don't want to judge the climate too much because I don't. I think only physicists, you know, from Max Planck Institute or from MIT or EPA in Zurich, can really judge the climate. All the others, they should just shut up. They have no idea about the climate. But the point is, if that is something we need to do as well, it comes rather low on my agenda. My agenda at the moment is let's keep the grid going. And, you know, there is a thing about electricity. We are hooked on it. I mean, if you think we're hooked on oil, wait for electricity. So they say within seven days, if you have a blackout, and God forbid, I'm not saying we're going to have one. I think we're going to have curtailments because we have good operators, but they are all too. But if we would have a blackout, and maybe not just in parts of Europe, but a wider one because it's a connected grid, interconnected European-wide grid, then they say in seven days, a society is basically at the brink of collapse, and in 14 days, you're back at the Stone Age. Now, how it's pretty much the walking dead. It's like the, it's like yeah. the zombie apocalypse. I mean, it's, very, it's a very serious issue. I mean, there will be, you know, in Switzerland... You know, we Swiss like it reliable. And in Switzerland, the public transport of trains, and it's called SPB, had an outage, I think, in the last 40 years, not more than seconds. But then we had one for two hours here in Zurich. In a, for, for a, and some trains got stuck in tunnels. Just the, the train system, not, nothing else. And within two hours, you had raping going on in the train. So, look, this is a very serious issue here, and we have to get very serious. And I think the one reason I'm doing this, and I will talk much more about the grid and electricity altogether, how it all comes together, because we can measure it all. We have all the data, and I'm going to publish longer. And I consider it the public good in order to inform people like yourself. Weimar, you just asked the question. So did you guys know what's going on? And then please inform yourself further and further and then put pressure on these politicians. If we continue to do what we do now, we for sure have blackout at some point in the future. It's unavoidable. Not because yeah. I'm a drama queen, just because these are the numbers. Okay, look, uh, it's just the, the, I know the data and I see that we have baseload issue. And the baseload issue is not going to resolve by just keeping the course and even by saying, okay, let's keep some of those coal production plants longer online, what the Germans are doing at the moment, or by saying, you know, at some point the gas is back and then and, and then we are fine. We're not going to be fine. We're going to continue to have much, you know, what, what's the main effect? The main effect is that it's going to always be a, a, weather, a more and more weather-dependent kind of grid. And that creates massive uncertainties at times like right now in Europe, where the water doesn't flow and the wind doesn't blow offshore. And so we really have a perfect storm also from a weather perspective. And, and those problems cannot go away just because we have all the gas we need in the future. And so what we need is a reliable base load, much, much more than we actually need to be safe in all sorts of, you know, unlikely call it black swan events. And, and that's what we need to work towards to again. And, and I just think that mindset shift is very hard to reestablish while everyone is focused on only one and one thing only, and that is the green shift. While we don't have the technology to store, you know, the hydrogen plants, whatever you want to call them, whatever ideas out there, that will take decades to establish. 
So the problem cannot go away that we have now. It has to stay. And let me just be very clear here. I'll, 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 I'll make that statement because I'm, I'm absolutely sure I'm right. Were the Germans alone this afternoon to decide that they bring back not or keep alive, not the four gigawatt they have installed at the moment for, for nuclear power, but would come back and say, and by the way, we bring back those that we just turned off in December 21, that, that, so, so then you're back to eight. And then would say, by the way, and all these other plants that are fantastic as well, we bring back and bring back the 20 gigawatt installed that we had in 2009, I would argue the price of electricity would drop on Monday morning. I yeah, let, let, let's go to some of the other uh, audience. So, so let's talk with Alexander for, for a moment because we don't we don't here in the states. You know, at least I certainly don't know the dynamics politically there. But what what is the European Union trying to get some kind of consensus action in place or come up with some kind of plan? And we we know it's obviously very hard to get a number of politicians to agree on something from different cultures, right? But but what's sort of the uh, the dynamic there? No, I would say at the moment, what do you see? Where does the European response come together? That's in the European Union, in the European Commission. And that's where all the countries have to sit down and come to a common denominator and, de- and make decisions, whether it's on energy policy or anything. Foreign policy, as the gentleman mentioned before and so on. So, But the point there is, at the moment, the response by politicians, if anything, is to double down on the current path, which means more renewable, more renewable. And again, I have nothing against renewables, but they have to come as a replacement with the same reliability as what we take offline. And otherwise, you just create more or less two energy systems where you have to have the old one still in place because you never know when the new one is going to deliver what. And so that's obviously, from a cost perspective, a path to nowhere. At least for sure, I can tell you that it would take the the German industrial unit costs as one measure, it would, would let them explode. And, and important clusters that the Germans have established over the years, over the decades, call it the car manufacturing industry or the chemical manufacturing industry, they would have to leave Germany and go elsewhere to produce whatever they produce. So that cannot be in the best interest. Let me say something. I think one of the problems is at the moment, certainly in German politics, but in Scandinavian politics, I would say the Netherlands, you know, the Benelux countries are very similar. But also here in Switzerland, one of the problems is that this green energy transition, which is very ill understood and very few have, you know, even the, 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 the slightest idea of what it all means, is advertised as saving the planet from climate disaster in 30 years. Fine. It is never advertised as saying, we are the Green Party, and we're going to fix the energy production portfolio in a way that we have less CO2 emissions in 30 years. And by the way, at the same or better unit cost or at the same competitiveness for the entire industry, or simply saying, by not destroying any wealth of our country and our citizens. And you see, here is the problem. They don't say that. That's not part of their political. It doesn't come like we change and, by the way, keep the wealth in place. They say we just change, right? And then, oh, by the way, sorry, now the unit costs are 10 times what they were before. Oh, sorry, now we have unemployment to come. Yeah, but at least we saved the grid, right, which they didn't. So that's where it all comes back to the people and where I say it's our duty here to inform, 
and to make sure that we hold politicians that get elected accountable or then don't elect them. No one in Germany has to be surprised if their standards of living are going to collapse in the coming three, four years. That's what they voted for, period. And I, th I think the issue there, Alexander, and I think it's a very good point, I think the issue there is it, it sounds like something that should be done. But the problem is, of course, if if countries announce that they want independence from bad actors in terms of where their resources are coming from, well, it takes time to do that. And then the bad actors start doing other bad things because they try to counter it, right? So you almost have this this issue of, of, of timing, right? Something that takes a long time to enact to get independence. But in the meantime, in, in, the, in the goal of independence from, from Russia, Russia will do things to make that even harder. Let me just add, I mean, I don't want to make this a geopolitics session. And I, I would also be careful about some of the statements that I just heard about, you know, the people, this and so. But, but without making this too long, first of all, I don't, you know, uh, that there was mentioned Saudi Arabia. I consider the Middle East as an incredibly reliable energy partner. Now, that may change in the future. I cannot predict that. But so let's be grateful rather than a finger point. And then Russia, I think, has been, even during the Soviet times, never in a situation as they are now. So they were certainly reliable in the past. And I think the main mistake for European policymakers there was, by the way, that was the whole project of the liberalization of the European gas market was to have cluster risk with Russia. They just failed to implement it. And that has a history of 30 years and would take me at least two hours to explain all the details. But the point is, we are where we are. And obviously, now we're going to figure that. But you, how do you fix it? You fix it basically by increasing what we call reliable baseload. And that's mainly nuclear. And then it's coal. And it obviously can be gas-fired plants. But that's where we need to save come the winter. And that's why this is such a, a difficult path ahead to get to to make sure that this grid is 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 not having curtail having to go through curtailments, which I I now expect we have to. And again, it comes too much down to what the winter looks like or the summer to weather, and that cannot be the energy policy of the European Union going forward. So there, there is a lot that needs to be changed, and the main, in my view, thing that needs to change is to you can have a green agenda but you need to bring it in balance with energy security you cannot just say it needs to be renewable whatever the price and whatever the unreliability meanwhile let's turn off all the news it just doesn't work it will create massive problems to come problems that are hard to explain for people that haven't experienced we'll be back after a quick break Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. By the way, everybody in this space should follow Alexander here on Twitter. As you can tell, very knowledgeable and thoughtful when it comes to this part of the discussion around the global energy crisis. Yeah, let's do that, Nishab. Thanks for coming. Look, let's do oil differently because oil, as you know, is a past-dependent puzzle. It depends on the 5.5 million exports that Russia is currently mainly, you know, shipping uninterrupted. And then we have to see what the shipping capacity is as China and India takes more. China at the moment 
takes, call it 400,000 barrels more, and India 700,000 or 800 barrels more. And then how much more can they take and so on? So I can go on for a long time there and um, let's do that separately. But let's stick with electricity. So let me give you, I think, a way to look at it that, in my view, you know, helps you to understand the issue. So in our model, where we model each and every European grid, where we can, and we have all the numbers. And if we then sum it up to one European grid, the two largest countries of that grid, Germany and France, and by the way, number four biggest, Italy, or just after the UK, two, will become net importers. If, and that's a big if, if they want to save gas use for the production of electricity. If they don't, which can be done and will probably be done, they can probably just manage, not at every single, you know, during the winter it's going to be tight because obviously then they were relying on each other to help each other during extremes of weather. So January, February, March. So that's another problem. But in general, just for the entire year, the two would become net importers of energy. And I wouldn't know electricity and I wouldn't know where it comes from. So that's how severe I see the problem. It's unbelievable. In that model, I assume that the Germans turn off the nuke. That's what they currently say. If they don't turn off the nukes and want to keep it going, the four gigawatt they have in place, it's a bit less tight, but it's still very tight. Now, the alternative is that they say, okay, fine. So we have to use all the gas. The Italians heavily rely on gas when it comes to power production and the Germans too. And everyone else, they use all, by the way, the Netherlands, very bad. Their grid is mainly a gas grid. And so they can say, okay, we use all the gas for power production. But what does that mean, Le Schraub? It means that the German economy, the French economy, the Benelux economies, and all the Eastern European economies and the Italian economy. So about the only one I didn't mention that Atos is, uh, you know, the Scandinavian, Switzerland and Spain. They will be isolated from the issue, but all the others will have to overproportionally cut on industrial use for gas. And what does that mean? That means, and the Bundesbank came out with a study on it, that the GDP in Q1 2023 has a chance to contract as much as 10%. Now, Le Schraub, tell me, is that priced in in the market when the largest economy of Europe as a block, again, about the 22 trillion GDP contracts in that kind of way. Now, let's call it annualized 5%. What do you think is going to happen? So it's, it's, it's pretty scary stuff that I'm telling you. And you know, I stay optimistic. But my problem at the moment, what I just see is that we will need as much or more gas in the gate in order to keep the lights on. And then we have to overproportionally save everywhere else. So the large industrial consumers of gas have to overproportionally cut because households obviously are protected. You can save some there, but not that much. By the way, it's a messy process if you go through it because you try to cut off the gas there and then those are affected too. So you're not allowed to do that. So it's quite a complex puzzle to solve for the operators to curtail or ration gas. So we'll see how that pans out. But the point is we are there. It's all going to happen and we're all going to see it and we'll have to see how, how severe it plays out. What I can tell you is that I have absolutely no understanding or zero sympathy if the German minister says we can do without nuclear. They can absolutely not. 
It's like literally criminal. I'm very rare to use this kind of word. Yeah, thanks. Look, we know a thing or two about coal. As you know, Glencore has probably the best coal portfolio in the, in the planet. And they are printing money. So look, I'm a coal bull. At the moment, coal prices in Europe are pretty much where you just mentioned them. I look it up as we speak, but I think one month forward looking, it was at 420 euro. So two months forward, it's for over 400 euro now per for thermal coal, 600 calories, uh, six, sorry, 6,000 calories, hard coal. So that is what we all need. By the way, there we Europe needs to replace 58 million tons that we have sourced from Russia so far. So that's good news for South Africa, if you wanted to hear that. It's certainly good news for Australia. It's good news for Colombia. It's also good news for the US. And, you know, maybe we even have to ship it as far from Indonesia. And so I'm a, a bull there. But, you know, uh, what is interesting at the moment is the cooking, cooking coal that you use for metallurgical, you know, production. So steel making is actually below the price of thermal coal. I don't think that's going to last. You're going to bring in that metallurgical coal as well to support and, you know, uh, source whatever you can source out there. Look, it's a, it's another story of us as, you know, call it species, trying to change before we have established the new. So it's all fine to get rid of coal when you have all the technology in place to replace it. If you don't, you cannot replace it. And my guess is that coal will be for, you know, certainly coal for India and, and China will be around for another 30 years at least, if not more. By the way, in terms of global coal reserves, there will not, never be an issue for another 200 or 300 years. So it's not the problem. The problem is the policymakers have to stop villainizing coal as that CO2 emitter when actually we don't have alternatives or don't want the alternatives such as obviously nuclear, which will be the, the, the alternative to produce as much electricity as Europe wants all at once. And then, you know, you have to allow those plants to be built in a way that they are economic. Of course, there is, by the way, uh, just a little story here too, which may be of interest to the audience. There is such a law in place in Europe that you have to avoid any kind of risk that you can possibly avoid when building a nuclear plant. Now, that leads to a, you know, that's like saying, Boeing, you have to build a plane and it can never, ever fail. It's impossible for it to, to crash. Now, that's a policy you can run, but it means that the cost, obviously, to build that plane will completely explode. And that's a little bit the problem that we now have in the nuclear industry, where there is a zero tolerance for anything. And therefore, the cost of building these plants, France is just doing that pool and is now building one. The Finns are building one. So the Scandinavians go ahead with new ones, or not the Swedes, but the Finns. You know, the cost of these plants will be very high. And I just think that's because we have no reasonable measure anymore of risk reward. And I'm not saying they shouldn't be as secure as they possibly can, but I think you cannot avoid any, you cannot exclude any risk out there, right? I mean, these days, these plants, you know, they they have to be safe when a plane crashes on them and this and that and so on. So, I mean, how far can you go? So there has to be obviously an economic perspective included in that. We'll do one more question and then wrap up. Yeah, sure. So what you do is you buy your whatever produces uh, gas that is used in, in, in Europe. 
So you have two or three very nice uh, plays. I don't want to promote any of them, but reach out to me. I'm going to connect to you and then you, I, I can share some. So you have pure play European gas producers. They obviously going to over proportionally benefit. You want to look at the cold space and whatever produced there and what at least to your eye looks cheap. I think you want to be long energy European focused. Me personally, I'm on the sideline for the oil market. I think that's a much more difficult puzzle to read, and we try to avoid the puzzles that become too difficult to read. While we were bulls now for two years, I'm on the sideline here because I think it all comes down to what happens in December and February once sanctions bite, and then we have to see how those flows distribute in the world and whether the tanker or product tanker capacity is available or not, and then we can make a judgment call from there. And then I think you want to avoid what whatever is highly affected from inflation. So, you know, the other day someone said, oh, I'll buy consumer staples because they can pass on the higher prices to consumers. Well, they don't. Right? So you want to be very careful to understand what is what can really protect its balance sheet in these kind of times and i think most things can so you probably want to be short all sorts of things that have what i would call a zero mode company that is just going to have higher cost and and lower revenues so that's a bad combination you obviously have an earnings collapse there so avoid those and i think that's most for the next 12 months to come and i think the the economic ramifications obviously going to be rather dramatic this time around and on that basis you then have reflexivity and that again metals for all sorts of commodities so avoid metals base metals have already signaled the recession to come quite quite nicely so we had the largest correction in copper ever recorded in the last 40 years within the time frame so that there were six weeks 22 percent correction you haven't had that before so that's a big quantumental signal i think that has a lot to do with the, the way china is hurting so be careful anything that depends on china i'd be careful so uh, let's talk cooking coal again out of australia so that you have to be careful there because that is a chinese proxy that i think won't work so there so i think you you want to be very selective and in if in doubt stay in the u.s dollar because the u.s dollar is what appreciates the most in times of uncertainty, it's this risk, risk on, risk off, ultimate currency, right? Or the Swiss franc, or, you know, then I already struggled to say which other currencies kind of a save heaven. But the US dollar and staying cash, that gives you more earnings or call it purchasing power when you, when you come out of this, this crisis, which I think will take at least until the middle of next year because it just takes time to heal, right? First, we have to go through the economic ramifications. We're not even there yet. I don't know. No, I think it's going to ship somehow to Europe. You know, at the moment, funny enough, from like, that's just a little episode. At the moment, problem for Europe is how to how do you get the coal to the plant? Now you say, what the, what the heck are you talking about? Well, it, the coal that we source is is only in Europe is hard coal. We have to lignite ourselves. The Germans have it. All the others have it. So, so we have about half the production capacity of coal plants is lignite, and the other is is hard coal. So hard coal we source from elsewhere. And in that case, it comes to usually, um, and from there, it's uh, transported via the in, in, inland waterway system of, of Europe. And that's mainly Germany, and that's mainly the main, the Rhine River at the moment has very low water levels, which means that the barges can only load at best 30% of the usual load. So an average 
power plant of, of let's stick with EW, the German power plant and grid operator in the south of Germany, but owning assets all over the place, they need to ship it through the Rhine River to the Neckar to their plants. The four plants they have to produce, uh, you know, they use coal, hard coal for power production. And they need about, they need about, say, four to four to five to ten barges a day in order to supply what they burn. And at these low river levels, they obviously have emergency stock. If they stay for another six to eight weeks, and I think they will because that's the weather forecast for it, and these things are rather carefully monitored, then I think we, you know, they try to import, or at least that's the forecast, 30 million tons this year. It was 20 last year of hard coal. And I think in terms of barging capacity, they don't even have the capacity to ship 25 because we just did the calculation. So it's going to be all interesting. It's all going to come back. You know, maybe we need, let me finish it off here. Maybe we need this crisis. Maybe we need electricity curtailments. Maybe we need even a small form of blackout, God forbid, for policymakers to take this entire exercise a bit more scientific again, rather than just ideological. And maybe we need more people following Alexander. So (laughs) please make sure you follow Alexander here on Twitter. This is a fantastic conversation. Appreciate those that spent the bulk of the time here doing this conversation. And everybody enjoy the rest of your Saturday. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Alexander. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Leadlag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Leadlag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.